evening, everyone. I'm Joseph Fortcado. Joining me tonight is Murray Sabrin. Uh, he's a longtime friend of Cotto Gottfried, a man who I hold in very high esteem. That should go without saying that I am pleased as punch in a Swarovski crystal bowl to have him on the new show, especially given the new show's emphasis. Uh, Murray, how's it going? That's uh, going great, uh, Joseph. Thank you for the invite. Uh, I've been uh, uh, promoting uh, my ideas on uh, the internet, uh, radio, TV, podcasts, uh, in print. And so the message is to get uh, to, to reach as many people as possible with a, with a fundamental theme. Let's restore the republic, because if we don't restore the republic, we're going to go by the way of these um, left-leaning societies all over the world. And uh, that will not be a good outcome for the American people. You know, it's interesting. I'm a constitutional monarchist. I'm obviously native Floridian. Florida fought on the side of Britain during the revolution. And most people don't know that's the only part of the U.S. that was on the other side of that conflict. And I always wish that the conflict had gone the other way. But uh, at this point, one wonders exactly how much of the republic can be conserved given what's going on. It's really like uh, more like the European Union nowadays than I think the uh, ideal constitutional federal republic, which the founders established well this is this is why the constitution is as imperfect as it is lays down the basic blueprint for um, a decentralized federalist system unfortunately you have uh, two clauses in the constitution which have given the um the, the uh left-wingers the progressives the uh, ability to push through legislation and that is the commerce clause and the general welfare clause and mm -hmm. those are so nebulous and so uh, broad that anything goes that we've seen that during the new deal the great society programs and of course uh, in the last 30 years with these uh endless wars uh there's no declaration of war since december 8th 1941 after pearl harbor uh, was attacked so we've been fighting wars all over the world without a formal declaration of war and our civil liberties are under assault because of the patriot act and uh, all the republicans that sign on to that they're now seeing their goose being cooked because now they're upset with federal um, government intervention in, in, uh, in spying on people, in intervening in all sorts of uh, personal matters. And so whenever you have a president of your own party that, that you think is doing a good job by expanding government power, that always comes to bite you in the end. And, and we've seen this time and time again. And unfortunately, uh, we have to do a lot of work to restore the republic. And so that's my mission since I retired nearly uh, th uh, three years ago is to uh, take well, whatever skills I have in writing and, pre and presenting uh, these ideas to the uh, masses of the American people so we can begin the conversation and hopefully um, some change will take place over time. And it won't happen overnight, unfortunately. Uh, it, it'll be uh, as much as I'd like to see the change take place overnight. Uh, we need a transition, just like the Soviet Union had to have a transition when they desocialized after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that uh, America's only hope, the only rational hope it has, is to scrap the Constitution and go back to the Articles Confederation with the Bill of Rights included and a few tweaks to make the AOC, not the politician, but the Articles, uh, 
tenable in this day and age. And in that case, you'd have basically uh, 50 sovereign states that are combined under a federal uh, economic union or not a confederate, not as in the Confederate States of America, but as in the Articles of Confederation, right. a, a confederate uh, economic union and a, a union uh, with regard to, you know, mutual defense, stuff like that, uh, and a few other things. Uh, so I think that it would not be bad at all to 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 uh, to have the Constitution go by the wayside. I don't think it really does much of anything over the long run. Uh, a late great libertarian uh, who we both knew told me that the Constitution blows with the wind. Uh, and uh, the, I, I do believe that the Articles of Confederation were so powerful in limiting government that people who wanted a larger government sought the elimination of these articles as such. Well, the, the point I made in a recent Substack column is that if you look at Article 1, Section 8, which outlines the authorized activities of the federal government, virtually everything in the federal budget is not authorized. So we have an unconstitutional federal budget, which both Republicans and Democrats have signed on to um, for the past hundred plus years. And so even if we keep the constitution the way it is, all we have to do is make sure that members of Congress, the president, whoever that is, and the Supreme Court justices adhere to the Constitution. That's why I think the concept of nullification is quite fascinating, where states can say, hey, federal government, you're not following the Constitution, therefore what you're promulgating is not going to be accepted in our state. And then th that's essentially what the Articles of Confederation would, would essentially do, is if a, if a federal government does something that it's not authorized, then the, the states just ignore it. And so uh, that's a very powerful way of... Uh, challenging the federal government power and and eventually downsizing the government. I, I think that over the long run, America will just become like the Soviet Union. It's interesting that you brought that up because I think it's going to be this, uh, you know, a Republican empire, not as in GOP Republican, but as in a republic as opposed to, you know, a real, uh, a traditional empire. Uh, a So that you have this uh, imperial republic that eventually gets so caught up in its own slew of problems that it implodes and it's no longer able to function and it, it, the superpower becomes powerless. I think that's what's going to happen to the to the U.S. Uh, within the next 70 or so years. I imagine that in 100 years time, Florida, where we both live, will be under some other flag. Uh, and that's quite in keeping with Florida's history because it is the land of five flags, the uh, Spanish, the French, the British, the Confederate, and of course, Uncle Sam. So uh, it's it's really uh, interesting. Uh, I, I, Florida has withstood the test of time. I don't think the United States will. Well, this is the, the theme of my uh, 2019, uh, October, October 2019 address, which was essentially my farewell, farewell address when I retired uh, in July of 2020. I, uh, the title of my talk was America, the next 70 years. At the end of my talk, I said, given everything that's happening, remember, this is pre-COVID. I said, there are too many centrifugal forces in the United States, culturally, economically, politically, that for the United States to survive as a nation, I don't think will happen over the next 70 years. And my forecast is that we will have America split into either several countries, the Northeast, the Southeast, the Upper Midwest, the Southwest, the Far West, and uh, the Rocky Mountain states. So you could have about seven or eight different countries have regional um, uh, coherence, or, or you could have 50 separate uh, states under one confederation, like the Articles of Confederation. So there are so many permutations and combinations that could happen that... Um, well, uh, let the future generation see exactly what will unfold 
over the next 70 years. But I think there's too much polarization for America to be one coherent nation. Absolutely. And the analogy I made was when I was campaigning statewide in New Jersey for governor in 1997 and then for uh, U.S. Senate in the following decade, I saw this just in small New Jersey. There is a world of difference between Bergen County, which is adjacent to New York City, separated by the Hudson River, where I uh, live, and then uh, Western and South Central Jersey. Uh, Culturally, politically, economically, they're much different. And so I said, take New Jersey, the small state of New Jersey, 9,000 plus square miles, and then just as that a microcosm for the whole country. And you can see that it's incompatible to have one coherent nation under one monolithic federal government dictating to 50 states what policy should be. And I think that concept really came across during the COVID lockdowns, where some states really locked down in a very draconian way. And some states like Florida got rid of the lockdowns pretty uh, quickly. And the Florida has been thriving ever since. And the in-migration has just gone through the roof the last mm-hmm. two years. It absolutely has. You know, one interesting thing about New Jersey, I, I'm i not from there, but I lived just across the Delaware River from it during my middle school years. I lived in uh, the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, uh, a place that I have very fond memories of. Uh, and it, it, the way it works in New Jersey, for those who don't know, is that in the northeastern uh, quadrant of the state, people are very much like those from New York City as part of the New York Metro. Uh, In the southwestern quadrant, people are like those from Philadelphia, part of the Philadelphia Metro. Uh, At the southeastern end, uh, around Cape May, uh, and in the Pine Barrens, not far from there, people actually sound almost Southern in their speech. It's quite amazing. And then if you go up, you know, which is Murray said, it's not very big to northeastern New Jersey. People sound not quite, but very similar to as if they were from New York City. Uh, So New Jersey really does have a lot of stuff going on for such a small place. And of course, in the northwestern quadrant of New Jersey, it's very much like Binghamton, New York, or Scranton, Pennsylvania. It's fascinating. Well, this this is the thing that you can throw back to the progressives. This is diversity in action. Diversity is natural. Diversity is a reflection of people's culture. And if we don't get the federal government involved or state governments involved, people organically evolve in communities based upon a common culture. And this is why I think it's so fascinating to see what's going on in America. People talk about diversity, but really what they mean is concentration of power in Washington, D.C., that you have to follow the dictates of the progressive. That's to them diversity, that uh, Republicans, independents, libertarians, conservatives have to follow the dictates of progressives. That's, in their eyes, diversity. Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating stuff indeed, the different perspectives on diversity. Uh, now, looking at the uh, economy and where it's going, uh, inflation has slowed down a bit. But uh, when people say inflation is down, obviously means it's still increasing, just not as much unless, you know, it's a deflationary environment where things really are uh, in good keeping. Uh, but I, I am a fan of deflation, unlike a lot of other people. Uh, I, I think deflation is uh, productive uh, in a general sense. I mean, you can say it has certain drawbacks, but I think inflation, generally speaking, is not good. Uh, so uh, we're still in this rather inflationary environment, not a hyperinflationary one thing heavens, uh, at least not yet. But uh, the way it looks is that inflation is not going anywhere anytime soon. It seems that uh, it's sort of like stagflation at this point. What do you think, Murph? Well, the interesting thing is that we still have a year to year around 6% inflation rate, which is mean prices in general up 6%. That doesn't mean every price is up 6%. Some prices are down, very few of them are down. 
but some prices are up by double digit or even more, uh, close to triple digit in some cases. And so there's one uh, price index that the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out, which I looked at recently. It's called sticky prices. These are prices that don't change frequently, like food and energy, which tend to be very volatile in the price index. And this is showing pretty high inflation, which means that we may see relatively high inflation for the rest of the year. We don't know exactly how it will unfold. But if prices for so-called sticky goods, where goods that are uh, don't change that much in price over time, uh, that inflation that we've had for the past year uh, may be embedded in our economy for quite a while. The good news is from the inflation front is the Fed, uh, is the mon uh, money supply, the M2, the broad money supply has been shrinking. In fact, it's it's negative year over year growth from a year ago, which means that as there's less money in the economy, prices will tend to decelerate and maybe even go down in the future. But we'll see how this unfolds this year, because uh, right now people have expectations of inflation of uh three to 5%, I think, for the next uh, 12 months. And in real terms, we have interest rates at the short end, three-month te treasury bills and two-year treasury notes of roughly um, three, 4%, which is still lower than the rate of inflation. So we're getting negative real returns. And the recessions tend to kick in when the real rate on, on uh, debt goes above, um, go is positive. And so... We're not there yet, but we, what we have seen in the last month or so, Joseph, is large companies, the high-tech companies that have uh, increased their employment during the COVID uh, lockdowns and during the subsequent boom, they're starting to lay off people because they took on too many employees, Amazon, Microsoft, Salesforce, a whole bunch of other companies. And as that spreads through the economy, which I think the, the ripple effect will take place this year, unemployment rate will go up. And from my research, it shows that once the unemployment rate starts creeping up, that means companies are contracting, they're, they're producing less goods, they're investing less. And that sort of is the tipping point for the economy beginning to tr contract, which is the typical um, uh, development during a recession. Now, this is interesting because it has been projected by many different people, and perhaps you'll disagree, that there will be a, a wide availability of jobs even as the economy contracts and we enter uh, a recession-like environment or an outright recession. Uh, and from what I can tell, people do expect there to be this plethora of jobs available and a labor market that's not very oriented to taking advantage of these jobs. What do you think about this state of affairs? Well, small businesses are having a real tough time um, hiring because um, people have squirreled away a lot of money during the pandemic when they weren't able to buy anything or bought very little and they were getting all this uh, money from the federal government uh, because they were uh, either laid off their business or, or closed down. So that money is in the system. It's in people's savings accounts, checking accounts, money market accounts. And so people have a cushion. Uh, companies are having a real hard time. In fact, uh, CVS and Walgreens just announced they're reducing their pharmacy hours because they don't have enough help yep, in the pharmacies absolutely. in the uh, uh, around the country. So I don't know what they pay pharmacists these days and the technicians that work in the pharmacy. But uh, this is a shocking development that uh, there's such a, a huge demand for labor in, in the local um, stores that uh, companies are, are having to 
reduce their hours of uh, operations because they don't have enough help. Where we're living now, an independent living uh, campus in uh, Southwest Florida, uh, we just saw that uh, their they have a help warranted in the employee newsletter of uh, about a dozen or so jobs, oh. and they're paying bonuses if you if you uh, so uh, if one of the employees refer somebody. So it seems across the board, uh, whether it's clothing stores at the malls or other stores at the malls, you constantly see help wanted signs there. And so uh, that's great for young people who are looking to make some extra money. But if they're not looking to make extra money, they're not going to take these jobs because uh, they may be waiting for something better or um, they just have enough cash on hand that they don't have to work. And so the work ethic, this has been mm -hmm. one of the, I think, um, criticisms of a lot of um, uh, entrepreneurs, corporate executives, that the federal government has sort of made, uh, uh, has created so many disincentives for work that people aren't taking jobs that people would, uh, in the past, uh, go after because they have good benefits, uh, flexible hours. And now um, small businesses, which, which in effect are the backbone of the economy. Oh. Uh, I mean, here we are in Southwest Florida. I'm sure it is uh, where you up are uh, in Florida as well. There are so many small businesses on Route 41, which is the Amiami Trail. And, you, and there yeah. are help wanted signs every place you go. And um, if, I mean, of course they don't pay as much, 15, $18 an hour, whatever the case may be. And if you're in a high cost of living area where, where we are, uh, it's very difficult to make ends meet, especially with the rents going through the roof here in Southwest Florida. Southwest Florida has been a mecca for people around the country. Housing has been bid up to astronomical prices. Uh, rents have yep. gone through the roof and, uh, and wages can't keep up with uh, the quote typical family of, um, of uh, young people. So unless you're a professional making a, a six figure salary, it's gonna be very tough have a decent standard of living in a high demand area because of uh, the tax situation in other parts of the country or um, or weather and climate that people don't like in other parts of the country. And there's another phenomenon brewing, uh, Joseph, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a whole coalition of states that want to tax people's wealth, which would yes. be an absolute accounting nightmare for uh, individuals. How do you determine the value of all the things that you own that get taxed on it? So this exactly. is another example of government run amok that the whole purpose of the income tax is to tax income not wealth and i don't see how the courts can uphold uh, a tax on wealth because it goes against what the constitution says is the permissible way to tax people given that we have a 16th amendment which authorized the income tax uh, as, uh, as uh, our late great libertarian friend said the constitution blows with the wind that's my perspective i i wouldn't be surprised to see certain politically motivated judges rule that the constitution means the exact opposite of what it says but uh it's it's really uh it's really a pitiable situation uh that people want to from certain states at least want to introduce these bizarre wealth taxes that obviously are going to drive away uh, prosperity and people who pay a large amount of taxes in terms of income taxes. Uh, I don't think these states are looking at the long run at all, but uh, it's not surprising given what else they do. Uh, I, I think that uh, when it comes to Florida, it's very interesting because uh, where you are in Southwest Florida, traditionally was where people went from Southeast Florida, which I'm sure everybody knows, but they don't, that's Miami, West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale. Uh, people would often go to Fort Myers uh, and other areas nearby, Naples, uh, to, to, to have a lower cost of living and a slower pace. But obviously now the pace is much quicker in, uh, 
in Naples, but especially Fort Myers, which is 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 uh, Lee County, which is where Fort Myers is, is by no means anything like a, a small or even mid-sized county nowadays. So the prices of houses in Southwest Florida have gone through the roof, and that was traditionally like a haven of uh, affordable or relatively affordable housing. But now, obviously, those days are gone. Uh, where I am in the northern tier of Central Florida, the prices have gone up tremendously, whether you're talking about rents or obviously buying a house in the market has cooled down a bit, but still the prices are not crashing by any means. So it's it's, it's interesting to see how Florida, which once was thought of as a bastion of uh, relatively affordable housing uh, outside of certain places here, uh, as compared to like New York or uh, LA, uh, now it's 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 not quite so affordable to say the absolute least. And St. Augustine, which is St. John's County, that's for those who don't know, that's just below Jacksonville, but above, uh, well, it's actually two counties above Daytona Beach. Uh, but it, that that median house price there, as of last year, as I recall, is about five hundred thousand dollars. So, and St. Augustine's not a big city in, in the slightest. They don't even have an Olive Garden there, as I've discovered. So it's it's and I've got just so folks know I've gone to St. Augustine too many times to count ever since I was a boy. I know it like the back of my hand. But the fact of the matter is that uh, the, the situation in Florida is such that, that housing is definitely not uh, what it once was. And one sees the situation uh, in some other places, but Florida is uh, a profound example of it. And it goes to show, I mean, the principle of supply and demand. Uh, you know, people want to move someplace that they think is going to be better for them economically and shares their values more in one way or another. And uh, when you get a critical mass of these people moving to this place, uh, the price of everything in this place, in this case is Florida, could be somewhere else, if we're, you know, having a different discussion, uh, the prices go up and, and they don't necessarily come back down. Even if there's a little uh, freeze in the housing market as there is now, uh, the prices don't plummet, uh, which is interesting because back during the housing crisis in the 2000s, uh, I certainly remember things plummeting, <laughs> not just down to earth, but to a subterranean level outside of a few places like the villages. Uh, it, it, even in Palm Beach, the, the, the price of things uh, declined quite a bit. So it's it's really something else to see the economic dynamics of Florida and the ramifications of these. Yeah, I, I think um, given the uh, dynamics around the country, Florida will still be attractive. So will Tennessee, which has no state income tax, New Hampshire to a certain extent. If you like very cold winters, uh, Nevada has no state income tax mm -hmm. and other states, uh, they will be magnets for states around them that have a very high income tax. That would be New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Illinois, um, California. So states that have high income taxes are going to very they're going to be very hard pressed to retain upper income folks, especially upper income retirees mm -hmm. who want to be in a place where they don't feel they're being robbed blind by the state government. And I think right. uh, this phenomenon will continue. The baby boomers, um, I'm the first wave of the baby boomers, um, and so uh, we've got. Uh, let's see, the baby boomers are. They they were born. The last wave of the baby boomers were born in 1962. So uh, we're going to see a lot of baby boomers coming to Florida over the next 10, 15 years. And uh, that means that uh, housing prices should stay pr pretty elevated in this part of the country. And unless we have a major, major economic crash where prices come down, like we saw it in the uh, housing bubble bursting, I think prices will stay relatively high in the last uh, few weeks, a few months.
they've been uh, coming down a bit because uh, with mortgage rates being double what they were a year ago and people being balking at the high prices, uh, there's softer demand. And when there's softer demand and pretty high supply, that's when um, prices will uh, either stabilize or come down. So we're seeing, again, as you point out, this, this is classic supply and demand. And uh, when you mix in all the other factors that, that uh, reflect, that demand reflects, uh, I think we're going to see an interesting uh, housing market, uh, not only here, but around the country. Because the question is, if people are moving to Florida, they have to sell where they're yes. living. So the question is, who's buying where they're living? It's certainly not the immigrants that are coming in through the southern border. They don't, they don't have enough money to buy three, four, five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand dollar houses in, in the Northeast or the upper Midwest or California. So, uh, again, this is going to be a fascinating uh, development. Uh, for the rest of the decade as to how the housing market will um, will unfold uh, given everything that uh, uh, the federal government is throwing at the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, indeed, we'll see. It'll be uh, something else. You know, talking about the housing market, sometimes uh, what motivates it is not necessarily like a uh, uh, a, a big uh, shift from one state to another where there's this one state attracting people from all over you know the country uh it, it could be something much more localized in new jersey as i understand it uh a lot of uh ultra orthodox jews are moving from uh new york city to new jersey uh because they are scared of totally understandably, of being targeted by certain people in the city of New York uh, who have a longstanding animus toward these ultra-Orthodox Jews. So it's it's it, it, this has really created a situation where within, say, 40 minutes of New Jersey, excuse me, of New York City, as I understand it, uh, a lot of these New Jersey communities where people weren't necessarily interested in moving until very recently, there's a lot of demand from, uh, from the ultra-Orthodox community and it's totally understandable as to why they would want to uh, to get the hell out of New York City, although New Jersey is certainly not a state I'd want to live in. But some, the fact of the matter is that sometimes there can be uh, pressures uh, in a certain locality that create uh, the demand for something that otherwise was really uh, neglected uh, or even disdained. In this case, it's New Jersey real estate. So many people are moving away uh, uh, to places like Florida. So it, it's, it's something. It's fascinating to see how the economy works. Well, I think that this is why those of us who study the economy, not only from the macro perspective, but from the micro perspective, uh, there's a lot of rich data to, to mine in, the, in these areas. And, um, and, and that's why economics gives you, I think, an overall view, which incorporates the, the politics, the, the, the sociology, the psychology of uh, how people make decisions regarding where to uh, uh, relocate. And we made a decision several years ago when we came down to Florida right before COVID hit in January of 2020. And we were looking around in Southwest Florida and we said, this is the place that would be good for us to retire. And so we moved from a rental development that we were living in uh, starting in June of 2021 and moved to this uh, independent living campus um, uh, three months ago. And it's worked out uh, fine for us. It, uh, the demographics are people of our age, a little bit older, a little bit younger. And so it's a lot of socialization going on here. Uh, 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 it's a gated community. And so um, we have all the amenities you can possibly have. And so um, from my perspective, uh, and I think my wife is getting more used to it as time goes on, it uh, provides us with all the uh, um, 
the uh, things that we need now in this stage of our life in terms of uh, uh, ample room in the apartment. Um, we're having uh, all the, all the things that you find in a in an upscale resort area. You have uh, you have uh, gym facilities. You have uh, dining facilities. You have medical facilities on campus, and so uh, this I think is going to be expanding as time goes on because people seem to. Um, enjoy this type of lifestyle uh, after they've lived in a house for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and they're um, and they want to cash out their house and move into something that will give them uh, the security that they want and the comfort that they want um, uh, in in their uh, post post retirement years if, if, if that's such a phenomenon. <laughs> what what was it if I might ask that you and your wife found uh, so engaging about Southwest Florida? I, I I don't dislike the area at all, and I know it quite well. Uh, but what what is it that that you found interesting? Because obviously a lot of other people find uh, nowadays interesting stuff there as well. It's not just the uh, de default alternative to uh, Dade, Palm Beach, or Broward counties. Yeah, well, we had a place in uh, on the East Coast, and we found that congested, and we sold it many years ago. And so um, my sister-in-law lived on Sanibel. Her house uh, was basically uh, underwater, not all, completely because of the hurricane in September. So uh, the house has been gutted and we wanted to be near her. Uh, she's uh, She's been a widow for many years. And so we figured uh, uh, we don't have much family, so it would be nice to be close to uh, my wife's sister. And so we, uh, and we scouted out of the area and we liked what we saw here in terms of... Uh, uh, ease of transportation, um, all the things that we were we had up in New Jersey in terms of shopping were here. Yeah, and the sure. nice thing about uh, where we are now is that we're literally ten minutes away from all the major shopping that we need. And mm -hmm. so, um, and 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 I find Florida, having lived in the Northeast for virtually all my life, the air quality is so much better down. It is. I know that for for a fact. I I, I had the same experience. And and the other thing is. Uh, we, we don't have these brutal winters. I mean, in the Northeast, when you have a, a cold spell where you have 32 below 32 degrees for days on end, and sometimes maybe a week or two, plus the wind chill, and you're really a prisoner in your own apartment or home, uh, I just found this at this stage of my life uh, very uncomfortable and unattractive. And plus the tax situation in New Jersey was not great for, for the two of us. So. Uh, so the question is, where do we go in Florida that we're familiar with? We're familiar with the East Coast and we're familiar with the West Coast um, in Southeast and Southwest Florida. And so um, at, coming down here, uh, we scouted out the area thoroughly in J January of 2020. And then uh, we decided to uh, uh, move into a rental uh, development, a brand new one. And uh, things didn't work out the way we thought it would be uh, for a whole host of reasons. And so then we, a um, uh, former colleague of mine lives here. And then we saw the ads for the, uh, for the facility on cable TV. And uh, my wife and I say, let's go down and take a look at it. That was last summer. And we moved in here at the end of October. And um, given everything that I'm doing and where we're located, not far from I-75, which gives you access to the wow. East Coast, to Miami, Fort Lauderdale, or up north. Um, so we're, we're in a very strategic location, not far from um, the Southwest Florida airport, if we want to fly anywhere. And we're not far from the Naples airport, which is all private jets. I passed by it uh, this uh, morning and um, all you see is all these wonderful jets, uh, private jets lined up. There are no commercial flights there. And um, I think they just expanded the airport 
based upon the projection for, I think, 2040. And it's already exceeding their projection for flights 2040. So who knows if they can expand it anymore. But this is the reality of what's going on in the country. And uh, there are a lot of interesting developments, uh, whether they're positive or negative, is in the eye of the beholder, because some people are now complaining about the congestion in, in Southwest Florida. The uh, developers are coming in buying up tracts of land and putting up Absolutely. big developments. And there's a lot of pushback from residents who um, don't want to see more people in their communities, which is, I think, kind of tacky since they came down here and uh, they want to close the door to other people living in Southwest Florida. So uh, I'm not a big fan of people putting up uh, draconian restrictions or any restrictions for that matter regarding uh, development, as long as the developer is paying the infrastructure uh costs in order to get the development uh, uh, in place, because sometimes the taxpayers have to come up with a, get a hefty bill for uh, these large communities. And um, you've heard about a Babcock Ranch in um, uh, North uh, Fort Myers, and that's a self-contained community, I think, of 2,000 acres. It's a huge development, and uh, it seems to be thriving with uh, its own infrastructure. It's interesting because I am a big fan of limiting development to uh, to a certain extent. Uh, the part of Florida I live in is very much like Somerset County, New Jersey. Uh, and I know, and, you know, it's horse country, all that. It looks yeah. very, very similar. Uh, like you could take a picture of it, and you wouldn't know which is which. Uh, and the climate here is much colder than it is down yep. where you are. Uh, but uh, all the same, uh, overdevelopment here definitely is an issue. Massive suburbanization. It's uh, getting to be that there's like an unbroken chain of suburbia coming up from Orlando through the villages up to Ocala. And uh, it's, it's really uh, jarring to say the least, but I do see what you're saying. Of course, as a native, uh, I, I wouldn't have trouble shutting the door on people at all. But I, I could see your point about people who come here and then they took advantage of a situation. And they don't want others to benefit from it. Uh, I will just say before we get back into economics, uh, it is astounding to see the, the, the rate of uh, obviously economic change. There's many more things here now, many more stores, many more economic opportunities, uh, much better amenities than there was when I was a boy. And I'm not terribly old. Uh, but uh, the, it, the culture changed so much, especially in my neck of the woods. Uh, when I was a lad, there was still like a local dialect. Uh, there, the, the, the population was generally British descended. Uh, and obviously, almost everyone spoke English. Uh, but uh, today, <laughs> no longer the case. You can't even drive around for about a half an hour without seeing, uh, you know, without seeing license plates, obviously from other states, but a lot from Canada. Not that there's anything wrong with Canadians. Uh, most are here from Ontario. And uh, if you walk around a store, you're going to hear people speaking different languages uh, or people speaking English with an obvious foreign accent. It's just, you know, a sign of the times how things change. But, uh, you know, there, there are good things that come with the change and there are bad things. But uh, I, I obviously am one of the people who would like to limit uh, growth in terms of building out. I'm in favor of building up. I don't mind tall buildings. I'd rather people live in apartment blocks or condominium blocks uh, as opposed to, you know, gobbling up all the farms and yeah. having these tract houses on them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that certainly destroys things, uh, especially when the land is as unique as it is here with these rolling uh, pastures for horses, uh, stuff that you don't see in any other part of Florida or really, you know, almost anywhere else uh, with the exception of like Lexington, obviously Somerset, County, then there's Chantilly in France and Newmarket in England, uh, and a, a bit in Ohio as well, as a matter of fact. Uh, 
but it's it's really uh, so you know I, I I see what you're saying about growth and not limiting it, but uh, obviously uh, I <laughs> I feel very strongly about my point of view too. <clears throat> well, that's what makes it so fascinating about uh, how do you have a harmonious society with less conflict, and we know we're get, there's going to be uh, population growth over time. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact of life. That's part of the human evolution that we've seen in the globe. We have, what, 8 billion people on the planet now. Uh, and there were people decades ago that said the, the Earth couldn't support 8 billion people. And it's supporting it quite well, relatively speaking, to what people said was going to happen if we reach this population. So uh, human beings have a very, um, I think, optimistic uh, outlook. And they have the ability to innovate and create uh, to to meet the needs of people and a growing population. And we know there's something very fascinating going on, Joseph, and that is the uh, the financial unsustainability of Social Security and Medicare, where you need new workers in the economy in order to support the people who are retiring. And so that is a debate that's been going on uh, behind the scenes for quite a while, mm -hmm. that we're not having enough population growth uh, mm -hmm. because Native Americans um, are not producing, uh, reproducing as quickly as uh, we need as, a, as an economy to support all these social welfare spending. And so that takes us back to economics is that the chickens are coming home to roost for these two programs that have a lot of support, but they're financially unsustainable. And so um, I, I addressed that in a book that I wrote nearly 30 years ago. Actually, I wrote it 30 years ago. It was published in 1995 on how to create a tax-free America that would... Um, uh, address the problem of Social Security and Medicare and other social welfare spending. So we wouldn't have to rely on the government for this, but we, we would take it on our own personal responsibility to save for our retirement. And uh, that's something I've been advocating for uh, a long, long time and uh, running campaigns for the U.S. Senate based upon that principle that we cannot, we don't have a sustainable social welfare system it's it's just not sustainable when the government's involved it will be sustainable if we leave it up to the private sector and the nonprofit sector in order to make sure that uh, people have the wherewithal and it's called savings joseph something i learned as a youngster i saw my parents saving and so when i started working and i, I saved a good portion of my salary because i knew one day i would retire and i, I don't want to live just on social security so we put, I, we, my wife and I both put away a lot of our income in order to have a, a financially secure future. And that's what's needed in this country is the ethic of savings. When most economists say, no, what drives the economy is spending. So go out and max out on your credit card so you can spend in the stores and companies can produce. And that's not the way the economy works. That's the way some economists think it works. But what you need is if you spend all your money today, uh, you're not going to have much for the future. And we know, Joseph, from the data that uh, a good portion of the population do not have $1,000 in reserves in case of an emergency. Absolutely. $1,000. Mm -hmm. And if you yep. have an accident and uh, you have out-of-pocket expense for a car accident, you may have a few thousand dollar bill to fix your car that insurance may not cover. Yep. So uh, I've always had a belief from learning from my parents and then learning about the economy when I was uh, an adult, you've got to save for the future, the, either the proverbial rainy day fund or enough for your retirement accounts so you won't be financially insecure. And uh, 
that is a message that uh, I convey to students in a very matter of fact way, teaching finance for so many decades, is that savings is the foundation for prosperity, not spending. It is, absolutely. Uh, and this brings up something interesting, which we'll get into. Uh, but I'll just say quickly, from my perspective, there are always limits to growth in terms of quality of life for people in any given community. Uh, growth in every sense conceivable when it comes to, uh, you know, building uh, structures and the economy itself. Uh, but uh, obviously, I'm in favor of a very robust economy, and uh, I would not want the government to manage it in the name of, quote, unquote, limiting growth. But I do think there are always natural limitations to growth, including population growth as to how much any given area can comfortably sustain. I certainly see the uh, effects of overpopulation daily uh, when I'm out on the road. Uh, and it is uh, definitely... Uh, it, to someone who is used to something very different here, uh, it's it's uh, jarring. But anyway, talking about uh, about uh, the idea of spending as opposed to saving, economically speaking, uh, there is modern monetary theory, which came to mind as soon as you started discussing this. Uh, obviously, you have a very dim view of it. I do as well, though I think you obviously have a dim view of it from uh, an Austrian school perspective. Uh, Murray, what's your take on, in a nutshell, on why modern monetary theory is a bad idea. And I bring this up because obviously it's captivating so much attention nowadays in academia and in public policy. Well, I think I think it's been totally discredited because uh, no society has ever printed um, money to, to have sustainable prosperity. It just doesn't happen. If, if uh, printing money was the key to success, uh, Venezuela would be the, uh, would be, would have the best economy in the world. And so would Zimbabwe, where they printed money to, to in such a way that uh, they were, they, uh, people were using $100 trillion Zimbabwe dollars in transactions. This is crazy stuff. And uh, this is why you have to understand or read financial history, monetary history, which I did when I was uh, researching my dissertation back in the 70s, is that uh, when governments go crazy in terms of running these budget deficits and they get larger and larger and larger, and uh, you print up the money to, to uh, cover the cost of those uh, deficits, you're off to the races with hyperinflation, like we saw in Germany after World War One. Here, because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, people are accepting the dollars, buying up our debt. But I think that's changing. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that uh, countries around the world, investors around the world, are not too keen about loading up on dollars because they see all the money, money creation that took place in the United States. And China doesn't want to be under the thumb of uh, the United States, neither does uh, Russia and other countries who... Uh, uh, who are, who are feeling the brunt of American foreign policy uh, aggressiveness. And so they're saying, what's an alternative? And I think about last year, I think, I don't have the data in front of me, but foreign central banks have been gobbling up gold when the price has been relatively stable, not driving it up. And now we're seeing the price of gold starting to go up, which suggests to me that there's a lot of demand out there for the precious metal because they know that is the ultimate form of money. Uh, the paper dollars that we're seeing, the fiat currencies that we've been seeing for the past uh, half a century, they've been declining in value all over the world. And so uh, people are getting very nervous. Uh, you don't see this uh, discussed in the mainstream media, but um, uh, the dollar has been strong last year. It's starting to weaken a little bit. And I, I, could, I, I think it will continue to weaken over time. There'll be cycles where it goes up and down in value against foreign currencies. But I think the long-term trend of the dollar, as all fiat currencies are, is to go down against real money, which is uh, the, uh, the 
eminent money around the world, which is gold. Gold is acceptable uh, around the world as our U.S. dollars. So the question is, how long will the dollar be acceptable as the world's reserve currency? And uh, no one knows the answer to that. But the, the, the short answer is we'll know when that happens, when the dollar starts to decline rapidly because people are unloading their dollars. It may be a, it may be a slow decline or it could be a very precipitous decline. It really depends on U.S. Uh, foreign policy, U.S. monetary policy, U.S. fiscal policy, and uh, what the political situation is in the country. So uh, there are a lot of uh, moving parts to the, this puzzle, but um, the long-term trend of paper money is to go down to its intrinsic value, Joseph, and that's zero. That's the scary part. And we've seen this uh, play over and over again throughout world history. It is. Now, there is something of uh, an interesting question which comes up from what you've uh, discussed. And I am very much a fan of precious metals myself, I'll just say. But others uh, have said that uh, precious metals aren't really the hedge one needs against the decline of the dollar. It's cryptocurrency. And obviously, cryptocurrency is taking a big hit. Uh, what's your perspective on the pro-crypto crowd who share your fears about the U.S. dollar, but they say that precious metals are uh, not the way of evading the uh, the destruction of the dollar. Yeah, precious metals are real commodities. They have, they're tangible. You can touch them, you can feel them, you can store them. Uh, crypto is basically a, sort of a, a fiat money substitute, is that you can't feel it, you can't touch it. It's, it's sort of a digital currency, if you will. And uh, now, even though it's supposed to be capped at 20 million uh, bitcoins. Um, there are other uh, cryptocurrencies out there. So again, um, when something is inflated in value to $66,000 for a, a Bitcoin, then it crashes down to less than 20,000. That's not a good store of value um, because and, and a medium of exchange, because if you bought a crypto uh, or Bitcoin at 66,000, and then a few months later, it lost two thirds of its value. That is not a good store of value. So, um, I'm pretty skeptical about it uh, in terms of uh, being a viable means of exchange, which is the definition of money. It's got to be a means, a medium of exchange. And if it doesn't have that attribute, it's really not money. It's basically a, a massive speculation. That's what it, it comes down to, because um, governments want to get involved in the central banks by curating digital money. Well, we already have digital money. I get um, I, I get uh, money from uh, my investment firms, Social Security via um, my checking account. So that's digital money. We don't need uh, for the Federal uh, Reserve to create a, a separate one. We already have it. Uh, everyone does online banking. That's digital money. You don't, you don't, very few people use dollars anymore. In fact, um, the danger of that digital money uh, is that the government can track everything. They can track mm -hmm. every transaction we make. And that would be a gross violation of our financial privacy, our privacy in general. And uh, that means they would have ultimate control over the economy, which is a, which is just the polar opposite of what we need. What we need is the government to get out of people's private financial affairs. That's why I've been advocating get rid of, getting rid of the income tax, which I did in my uh, Substack column the other day.
Now, uh, something interesting is that back in the day, in the early 1900s, my uh, father's family was in the West Indies. And they came from somewhere else, but they wound up in Puerto Rico after the U.S. took it over. And they owned a tobacco and sugarcane plantation. I never saw any of the money. Neither did my father. And my grandfather did not take advantage of his share of the profits when the family real estate was sold in the uh, 1960s. But, uh, you know, could have, should have, would have. But anyhow, uh, what? my uh, great-grandfather used to do was transact commerce using gold coins. Uh, mm. And it was it was a, a very good system for a host of reasons. Uh, it was, the, you know, the gold was, was quite liquid, uh, obviously uh, untraceable, not that they were doing anything illegal, but it, they very much liked to have a, uh, a store of value that could be used for trade in many different jurisdictions. And obviously the Caribbean is a place where there are many different flags flying from island to island. Uh, so it's, it's something else. Gold ha- absolutely has a track record of being a uh, an exceptional store of value that is uh, wherever you go, it's going to be accepted at some level. That That's mm-hmm. a very important thing. So uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big gold fan and it's definitely part of my family history. I really wish I still had a share. I really wish I uh, inherited a share in a tobacco plantation. Not that I never got one to begin with. Uh, It would have been awesome if I did. Although I'm not a big fan of people smoking tobacco, I'd rather have grown sugarcane. Anyway, uh, talking about uh, talking about uh, the uh, economy and where it's headed. Uh, what do you think is going to become of remote work? That's something that was around obviously before uh, COVID, but it blossomed during COVID and as the pandemic wound down. Uh, and it's still around today. It seems like even though some places have gone back to in-person work, uh, there's no shortage of remote positions out there. Uh, do you think that the remote work boom will continue? I, I think it will because uh Listen, given what we saw in the price of gasoline last summer, five, six, seven dollars a gallon, uh, that puts a big crimp in people's um, income. And so uh, if, if gasoline prices go back up, which they probably will over the next uh, several years, again, we don't know the exact timing of it. And um, you don't have to buck traffic, as you alluded to uh, before. Uh, people don't want to spend 45 minutes, an hour traveling uh, to work in good without any major delays. And so uh, uh, traveling 45 minutes an hour to work is a big part of a person's day. And you're not productive unless you're doing, I guess, an audio book. But if you're at home, you could be a lot more productive. I think the uh, data suggests that, that people uh, don't have to have the tense drive to work or the tense drive home. They could be more productive. They don't have, they can work more leisurely. And uh, with Zoom and all these other um um, uh, technologies out there, you can do conference calls uh, seamlessly. And so uh, you don't have to be in the workplace, but a lot of places you do want, and, uh, and employers are starting to tell people, you have to come back to the office, whether it's three, four days a week. I think people like to have that three or four day uh, weekend because you could be a lot more productive if you can do um, eight hours of solid work at home as opposed to four or five hours in the office because of all the distractions that take place in an office setting. So I foresee this to continuing. And besides the current generation of uh, young people, they like working at home because um, uh, their culture is they, they enter the workforce right before COVID, COVID hit, they stayed at home, they worked at home, they like it. 
and they want to continue something they're very comfortable with. So uh, the question is, how do, how do employ, employers balance the work at home with the work in the office? And that's what they're going to have to figure out with the uh, current generation of uh, young people. And we know a lot of work can be done uh, at home over the internet, uh, whether it's uh, uh, whether it's just getting stuff from your employer and, and working on uh, your computer, or um, uh, maybe meeting people at home or doing Zoom calls. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, this is just another example of diversity in the workplaces. There are so many permutations and combinations where people uh, will will get the work done. The question is, is it important to be in an office setting? And that's why commercial real estate may be under pressure in the future as companies realize they don't need that much uh, downtown re uh, uh, office space in order to conduct their businesses. Now, there's obviously a, a, a rather a very profoundly tragic event that took place in Memphis. Uh, a, a man was uh, essentially beaten to death by five policemen. And uh, thankfully, it's not another racial uh hellscape incident uh it but uh even you know though some people are trying to make it out to be one it, it's not it can't be it's impossible uh but uh it, a lot of people are angry about it and they're protesting they're out in the streets uh, in different cities and a lot of these people who are protesting are not only uh not of the race involved in the incident but they're white and as i understand it disproportionately college educated yet economically downscale and i think that the economic situation of these young uh people in their 20s uh does explain why they're attracted to something so radical as you know militant street politics particularly uh as uh, articulated by antifa uh murray look yes yeah, someone who obviously taught college for decades and uh, who just retired as a matter of fact uh what do you think about uh a tendency to be economically downscale among college graduates and how that impacts them uh in a host of ways because i think if you want to understand if anybody wants to understand why so many younger americans are so angry and prone to political radicalism in one direction or another this sort of economic uh economically downscale trajectory uh goes a long way toward providing uh, understanding that trajectory goes a long way toward providing answers well, unfortunately, there are many young people, I don't know what the exact percentage is, that are going to college for degrees that are virtually uh, not very helpful in, in the uh, job market when they graduate. I mean, uh, I taught in the business school and students were very, very motivated to uh, uh, learn skills that would allow them to become entrepreneurs or work in a corporate setting or a small business setting. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was their purpose. And uh, I think uh, business students, uh, business majors around the country are having a very easy time getting jobs because there's such a demand for their skills in, in the workplace. But if you're a major in gender studies or uh, other uh, subjects that don't have very good uh, job prospects, you can see the frustration when you spend four years in college and there's not much to do when you graduate. And so some mm -hmm. people may be prone to being come, uh, become an activist. And so uh, what, where that gets you uh, may be good um, psychological um, uh, happiness, but it's not going to give you very good uh, paychecks uh, if you're looking to have a decent uh, living standard. And we know some of these uh, youngsters come from wealthy families or upper income families where they may be getting some sort of uh, income from their families or their family's businesses, and therefore they uh, don't have to uh, have work uh, on their horizon uh, and, and they're not uh, not terribly motivated to, to be productive members of society 
but they want to be social political activists. And so uh, that's an unfortunate development because of um, the polarization we're seeing in the country, whether it's environmental issues, whether it's so-called racial justice issues, whether it's uh, economic equity issues. I mean, there, there, there's not a dearth of issues that people can gravitate toward to say, we want change. Well, I, I've been wanting change for uh, a long time, given my libertarian perspective on issues, but uh, uh -huh. I try to do it with the old fashioned ways, try to persuade people and um, using my writing uh, skills, my speaking skills, and uh, in order to show why uh, we have to restore the Republic and uh, young people who just want to, uh, uh, challenge what we have now, thinking this is the essence of capitalism, when of course it's not. We have crony capitalism for the most part in America with with a dosage of a good portion of free enterprise. And that's what's keeping the economy afloat, Joseph. It's not the crony capitalism that's the that is the uh, uh, that is the problem. It's 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 not free enterprise that's the problem. It's crony capitalism. And that's what they're railing against. But if they understood that it's crony capitalism, the nexus between business and the uh, politicians, that's what we have to challenge and point out that uh, this is th this is the model that has developed in the United States that needs to be challenged and eventually abolished. Now, uh, you had you have a new book out, which is a biography, and uh, I obviously would like to chat with you a bit about it. Uh, one one big question, I suppose, worth asking is, how did you become uh, such a, an adamant libertarian? Obviously, you're one of our ties foremost libertarian public intellectuals uh, and Austrian school economists. Uh, was the was the, the formation of your libertarian views, was that a result of obviously the horrendous struggle that your parents went through uh, during the Second World War? Was it something else? How did this come about? And obviously, this is a great segue into your uh, biography. Well, uh, in the book, I discuss my political journey from um, a liberal Democrat in the 1960s. My father was a Democrat, uh, so the children tend to be Democrats. We never talked politics, but he told me after he became a citizen in 1954, he uh, donated to Adley Stevenson's uh, presidential ca candidacy uh, or uh, campaign in 1956, the first election he was able to vote in. And he told me he donated $5 to his campaign, which is a lot of money for him because he was, I think he was making $3 an hour. So it was nearly double his uh, hourly wage. And uh, we never talked politics uh, per se. And so I was a history major, geography minor, growing up during the Vietnam War, from uh, I was an undergraduate from 1964 to 1968, and I was curious about the economy and uh, and uh, public policy. And so, as the Great Society was um, developing, as the Vietnam War was getting deeper and deeper, I, I realized by the late 60s this was not good for America. And so, even though I voted for you at Humphrey in 1968, I was reading Milton Friedman's column in Newsweek magazine, uh, giving a free market perspective on a lot of issues and it was making sense to me and then in 1969 i um came across a book in a syracuse bookstore we were visiting my sister and brother-in-law in utica we took a drive to syracuse and i came across ayn rand's book capitalism the unknown ideal i saw that on the shelf and i said this looks interesting so in the summer of 69 the first year out of college i started reading this and it really started clicking together for me that uh, free enterprise and uh civil liberties are the way that we should uh, organize ourselves instead of having uh, the the great society programs which is basically another way of saying uh, we're going to give you money for not working or uh, providing you with uh, resources just because you're an american citizen and so um, 
And then in the early 70s, there was an article in the Sunday Times magazine by two Columbia University students about libertarianism. And Murray Rothbard was featured with Ayn Rand and other uh, notable free market people. And then in 19, and then that summer, uh, uh, flying home from uh, Europe, I came across an article in the New York Times that someone had was reading on the plane by Murray Rothbard, who I learned about earlier in the year. And it was uh, right after Nixon did wage price controls and severed the last link between the dollar and gold. And the article is entitled The President's Economic Portrayal. I read that and it was just so crystal clear about what Nixon did as a Republican, supposedly a, a proponent of free enterprise and limited government, just went the opposite way in giving us more government control of the economy and severing the last link between the dollar and gold. And so um, when I went to graduate school in 1972, full-time at Rutgers, I came across more, uh, more of Rothbard's material and uh, the whole libertarian philosophy, Austrian school economics approach to analyzing the economy started clicking for me in 1974. And, um, and then uh, from then on, I became uh, an advocate uh, and an plier of Austrian economic uh, ideas and uh, libertarian philosophy uh, in my political outlook and eventually used that uh, Th those uh, those uh, that knowledge to uh, become a political candidate in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so the journey for me was pretty logical from liberal Democrat to seeing the reality of big government and, and realizing this is not working. And so what's the alternative? The alternative is limited government and free enterprise and personal responsibility. And more importantly, a non-interventionist foreign policy, which, of course, uh, is, is the crux of the matter, because if the government is going to have undeclared wars and endless wars overseas, that's contrary to what I think the founders envisioned for this country. And so the whole libertarian edifice, if you will, is applicable. It's common sense. It's about restoring fundamental values and principles to the country that would give us the social harmony, the sustainable prosperity, and the peaceful relations around the world. Uh, it, I mean, it's fascinating, obviously, your political journey. I wasn't aware that it took that course. Uh, and and uh, I, I believe you once said that your appreciation for the Second Amendment is because your father fought as a partisan against the Nazis. He was from Lithuania, as I recall, and you were born right. in Germany. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, I grew up listening to my father's experiences during World War II. In fact, he wrote a memoir uh, that was published by my older brother. It's called We Dare to Live. It's available on Amazon. It's a great little booklet. Reading it um, many years ago, I remember all the stories that he told me that were in the book. And then at the end of the book, there was one story he didn't tell me when I read it. Uh, uh, chills went up my spine because if he accepted the... Um, the recommendation of the Soviet uh, colonel that uh, helped liberate his part of Poland in 1944, uh, his ending would have been a lot different than it was by uh, by going on a mission that basically was a suicide mission. Uh, virtually everyone that went on that mission from Poland uh, was killed. Uh, and so um, when I read that, I said, um, uh, faith is is uh, an important part of my life because uh, if, if, if he because he rejected the offer to go on this mission into Germany, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And uh, uh, who knows what, what life would be like um, uh, in, for the past 76 years since I was born. So uh, 
Uh, he made a, a wonderful decision but uh, by ending his involvement in World War II in July of 1944. And then eventually um, he and my wife and my older brother moved from uh, Poland to G West Germany in 1946. And uh, from there, we moved to uh, the States in 1949. And uh, uh, my book describes all the developments living in New York City in the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. and, the, and the backdrop to all the events that uh, we witnessed the uh, Bay of Pigs, the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassination, uh, the King and Robert Kennedy assassinations in 68. And these are all the things that are happening while I was trying to figure things out about how the world works and what's the right way of the American people to organize themselves. And um, and that's why I, um, um, I was so happy I wrote this because uh, it brings back fond memories and challenges that I had as a youngster and as an adult. And uh, there's one underlying theme of the book besides my personal story, and it's mixed in with uh, what allowed me to have as much success as I've had, which is perseverance, persistence, positive mental attitude, sprinkled in with a little bit of luck. And uh, that got me to where I wanted to be, which is a college professor in 1985, and then having a wonderful 35-year career uh, in the classroom, and then um, having written four books since I retired in uh, July of 2020. Uh, you definitely keep a very, very busy schedule, and that's quite a testament to you. An interesting thing is that you grew up in the same part of the Bronx that my father did, and he's seven years older than you. Uh, and uh, it, today, that part of the Bronx is not a, uh, a nice place, to say the least. But from all I hear, it used to be quite uh, a, a humble place, but a very nice one where uh, different people got along quite well and violent crime was almost non-existent and people went out at night and they didn't fear all sorts of horrendous things. Uh, so it, it, it's something, uh, <laughs> because when you talk about, uh, about your uh, childhood as you have at various times over the years. It definitely reminds me a bit of my family story. And, uh, you know, like you, he came to New York, not, you were very young at the time, extremely young, but he came not knowing any uh, English. And uh, he came in 1949. I believe you said he came in 1946. So it uh, was a, a three-year difference, uh, even though there's a seven-year age uh, gap between you. So it, it's really, uh, you know, it, it's something else. I mean, your life story is fascinating. And uh, I obviously am able to understand it uh, quite well and appreciate it. And I hope that everyone else does too, uh, even if you have no uh, family ties to the South Bronx. <laughs> it's uh, it, there, there's uh, so much to learn from from Murray's uh, from Murray's saga. What is the name of your book, Murray? It's called From Immigrant to Public Intellectual: An American Story, and it's a mm -hmm. relatively short book. Um, it covers my journey from arriving in America in August 1949 through the my first political campaign in 1997 when I was a Libertarian uh, candidate for uh, governor and. Um, I was the first third party candidate to raise enough funds to get a matching match from the state, which allowed, which required me to be in the three debates with the uh, two major party candidates. And I described that campaign uh, pretty vividly because I had a bucket full of newspaper articles uh, that were uh, written about me and the campaign. And um, uh, I really enjoy that because uh, even without any formal debate training, I didn't, we didn't practice any debates. And the interesting thing, this, this is a great trivia question, Joseph, for you and your audience and the viewers out there. When Jim McGreevy, the Democratic uh, gubernatorial campaign in uh, <laughs> 1997, who was a state senator and a mayor, double uh, 
dual office holding it used to be a tradition in in New Jersey. Right. When he was preparing for the debates, he had an attorney play me as the Libertarian Party candidate. Well, who was that really? attorney? McGreevy eventually nominated him to the Supreme Court of New Jersey. So think about that. How many third party wow. candidates get a get a stand in who eventually become uh, a, a Supreme Court justice? That is outstanding. I, mean, I had no idea about that. That's outstanding. Uh, <laughs> quite a, a compliment to you. I remember the day, the moment McGreevy had that infamous press conference where he resigned. The guy who was standing behind him looked like he wanted to just shrivel up into the wall. Uh, I was in middle school when that happened. I was living in Pennsylvania. That was it. Was it was it was a shocking story for those who don't know about the strange uh, twists and turns of, of Jim McGreevy. But uh, it's it's really uh, it's it's really fascinating, obviously, all you've done in your life and your book from immigrant to public intellectual uh, absolutely is worth checking out. Uh, and Murray, uh, before we do unfortunately conclude tonight's discussion, uh, you do have a Substack stack uh, column. I don't know what the term would be, but you have this thing on Substack. Why don't you explain what it is, how people can find it and why you think they should read it? It's murraysabrin.substack.com, and I write a column twice a week. I try to do it on Tuesday and Friday, so this way I can write something on Tuesday based upon what happened over the weekend and something on Friday that happened during the week. And I write about uh, the economy mostly, a little politics mixed in, but basically how to have a better America. That's really the, the thrust of my work, is taking what we have today and making America better. And it's just common sense approach. I call and it's called libertarianism because libertarianism is is a pro human value philosophy where we value each individual that the government doesn't uh, tread on people to use that famous Gatson uh, flag. Uh, Don't tread on me. And it's, it really incorporates the civil liberties protected uh, to us by the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and uh, using free market principles to generate wealth and prosperity and eliminate poverty or reduce poverty as much as possible. And so I write there twice a week. Um, and the fact that people become a paid subscriber to my Substack column, I will send them an autographed copy of uh, my autobiography. And uh, this way they can uh, read it, share it. And, um, and the wonderful thing what the publisher did he priced it so low, Joseph, uh, in order to make it as widely available as possible, both the Kindle edition and the paperback edition. And uh, there's some wonderful reviews. In fact, Judge Napolitano um, has a wonderful endorsement on the back cover. You can read it on on uh, Amazon uh, if you go uh, put it in uh, from uh, Immigrant to Public Intellectual. And there's some wonderful um, uh, ratings uh, about the book and uh, very wonderful uh, endorsements from ordinary people about about the book. Uh, ordinary, I, I'm using that word very broadly. These are people who are interested in ideas and uh, read the book and said, uh, this book is worthwhile reading. I have no doubt uh, at all uh, that it is. And uh, I also am very much looking forward to our next conversation. Obviously, we always address some very uh, important uh, topics. And I also would like to publicly thank Murray for something. I interviewed him at length for a doctoral thesis that I submitted late last year. Uh, it is for a doctorate in business administration. So uh, Murray, uh, I certainly have him to thank for his uh, immense expertise and taking the time to, to share it with me about different things. Uh, he's absolutely someone worth listening to, uh, to, to say the absolute least.
Thank you, Joseph. Appreciate being with you. Uh, you're, you're very welcome, Murray. And everyone, I hope you uh, enjoyed tonight's conversation. I certainly did. I think it's safe to say that Murray did. Uh, please stay safe, be well, and tune in for the next conversation. Cheers. Thank you.